Colossians chapter 3. <laughs> what I said just sound mystical all of a sudden. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 25. There are times when you are blessed not to be the one preaching. You will see why. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to 25. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. I promised for too long, sorry. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything. And do not, not only when their eye is on you uh, to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Let's pray for Clive as he, as he brings this, this word. Father, we thank you that, um, that you've been speaking to Clive this week about this particular passage and in general, um, and pray that whatever you have given him to say to us, he will be able to deliver clearly uh, for your glory and that you will speak powerfully through him. And help us hear it, that, that, that this will have an impact on our lives, on who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Ross. Just something I thought it'd be really uh, important and helpful to clear up is that uh, my wife Marilyn, who normally worships at the first service, was neither at that service today, nor uh, this morning, nor is she at this one. And it is not because of that first verse that Ross read, wives submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. It's actually that Marilyn's dear father, George, has had a, a double carotidectomy, an operation I had just over a year ago, uh, he's had the first part of that and he's recovering in hospital. Really grateful to those of you who prayed and he's doing really well, so thank you for that. But that's why Marilyn's not here. She's getting ready and maybe travelling north to be with him. Now, I just want to ask you if you caught the news this week about an art sale. If you did, you know exactly what I'm talking about before I even get there because there are not many pieces of art of Leonardo da Vinci available. Uh, the Sistine Chapel, I'm sure you're all aware that one of his great pieces is on the roof of the Sistine Chapel. But there's only about 20 pieces of his artwork um, available. Most of it, there's only a couple evidently that are in the hands of private collectors, now three. The rest are in major museums, because it's difficult to get hold of and even more difficult to pay for. And Salvatore Mundi, which means saviour of the world, is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ with his hands raised, Salvatore Mundi, saviour of the world. Da Vinci painted it in 1500. It sold this week for $450 million. Anyone see the story? $450 million. It was originally commissioned by Louis XII, King of France. It originally came to England, actually, through the wife of King Charles I. And in 1958, it was sold at Sotheby's, 1958, not really that long ago, attributed to Boltraffio, and it was sold for £45. So it was sold for £45, and then, that was 58, just literally this week, sold for $450 million, including the fees. What's, what's the moral? 
1958, Sotheby's £45. And 2017, Christie's $450 million. The moral is, sell your artwork at Christie's, not Sotheby's. No, that's not actually, that's not actually the moral. The moral is this, it's about authenticity. It's about authenticity. You see, it was authenticated in 2013. That's the difference between the Sotheby's £45 and the Christie's $450 million is the authentication that this is indeed Salvatore Mundi, a work of Leonardo da Vinci. And what I want to talk to you about today is the authentic love of Christ. The authentic love of Christ. The one who is depicted, Salvatore Mundi, saviour of the world in that incredibly expensive painting, now allegedly in the hands of a private investor so that he or she can look at it when they want. The application of this is that that authenticity makes it incredibly precious. And if we want to love authentically, we've got to love like Jesus. It's really tall demand, as we'll see. So as we come to this message, the sixth message in this little series we've been looking at, the incomparable Christ, as we look at message six, We're looking at loving like Jesus. The final message, by the way, in the series that we've been looking at in Colossians, a previous pastor, a good friend of mine, good friend of many of yours, Ian Coffey, will bring that message next Sunday morning at both services. A message about being devoted to Christ. But today we're looking at loving like Christ. And this has got to be a key message, because what some people have described as the golden rule is where Jesus himself in Matthew 7 verse 12 says, do to others what you would have them do to you. Do to others what you would have them do to you. He said, because this sums up the law and the prophets. That's what he said in Matthew 7 verse 12 and the verses following. This sums up the law and the prophets. Now Jesus was the embodiment of the law, the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures and the major and minor prophets. All of the Old Testament According to the New Testament and the New Covenant in Jesus, he fulfills all of that scripture. He embodies who God is. And actually, if we think of the core text in this epistle that we've been looking at, if you go back to chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, Paul writes to these Christians in a place called Colossae. He's on open arrest in Rome. He writes to these Christians in Colossae, and he says of Jesus, verse 15 of chapter 1, he, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by and in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is what it's all about. He's the one who created all things. In chapter 2, Steve Brady was speaking on this last week, verses 8 and 9. We're reminded that this church is facing, if you like, the spirit of the age and lots of false religious teaching. And the spirit of the age is a challenge that Paul addresses in this epistle. And in chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, he says, See to you, to these Colossian Christians, that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now, in the Greek, the basic principles are the elemental spirits, if you like. They're actually dark powers, deceptive powers, demonic powers. So he says, don't let human tradition or demonic powers behind that and behind false understandings take you captive. He said, 
Don't let that happen in this world, but rather depend upon Christ. Whatever you do, look to Jesus. That's what he's saying. For in Christ, verse 9 of chapter 2 says, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of God lives within Jesus. He fulfills the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. Okay? So this, in that sense, is a, is a key message. And, and I want to say this. Nobody loves like Jesus. The incomparable Christ, his love for others is incomparable. Nobody loves like Jesus. But when we do love like Jesus, the world notices. And we shouldn't be surprised about that because the world notices because Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So we come to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23, and we look at what it is to be loving like Christ. If you like, this is almost like Christian household relationships. But there's a couple of things we need to get a handle on. First of all is that the, this Christian household represented in the church of Colossae might look very different to your average household, Christian or otherwise, in the Western world. We talk about the nuclear family, two uh, parents and 2.2 parents. But there's all kinds of different families in the world. There are single parent families. There's a whole range of different relationships in which family happens now. But what was the situation then was much more likely to be a large extended family where maybe grandparents and even uncles and aunties and if you were wealthy there would be servants and even slaves there. That's the kind of family context we're looking at. And actually, what happened in this situation is that when Paul wrote this letter taken by Epaphras to uh, Colossae, it would have been read publicly. So they would have got the scroll or the parchment, and they would have read this publicly. So it's really important that masters and slaves, parents and children, husbands and wives, singles and marrieds, all those people that were gathered would hear the public reading of Scripture. And then they'd unpack it and, uh, and help each other to understand it. And the elders would teach, I guess. They'd explain it and unpack it more. And people would talk about it and pray about it, perhaps in a much less formal situation than we're in now. And that's why it's wonderful that we have small groups where we can do it in exactly that way and why we try and mix up and vary our services to try and worship God in different and creative and expressive ways. So that's the background. And as we move on, we need to kind of look back a little bit because... The Apostle John has said in 1 John 4, verses 15 and 16, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And he says, God is love. So God is love, says John in his first epistle. And we know and rely on the love that God has for us. So it's not just to enough to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and that God lives in him and he in us with our head. There's too many Christians that it's all about propositional truth in their mind. It's got to be lived out in our hearts and in our lives. It's got to be in our heart, in our head, in our life, and we've got to rely on the love that God has for us. God who is love, according to the Bible. So loving like Jesus means loving in his strength and in his grace. That's the first thing I want to say. Loving like Jesus means loving in his strength and in his grace. Remember last week, verses 12 to 14, of the same chapter, chapter 3, 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, those virtues are the ones we've mentioned, the compassion, the kindness, the humility, gentleness, etc. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We said if, if the virtues are like different items of clothing, putting on the love of Christ is like putting on the top coat, the overcoat, the raincoat, whatever, and the love holds all those other virtues together. That's the way we're supposed to love. Also, what, what we need to understand is that Jesus loves us just the way we are. I'm sure you've heard that before. Unconditional love is the love that Jesus has for everyone up there on the balcony and everyone down here. The love of God is unconditional. But it's been put, captured this way in, in a way that's become cliched. Jesus loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Let, let me give you the theological terms for that. If God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. If Jesus came and willingly and gladly laid down his life on that cross to die my death and to pay for my sins and to wipe my slate clean, that's part of the gospel message. It's not the whole message, but it's at the heart of it that he builds that relationship between man and God by being a perfectly holy human being as well as fully God and dying our death because God is holy. But actually, as Beth showed in our wonderful visual illustration with the triangle, he wants us to love him with all our heart and all our, our soul and all our mind and all our strength. But he wants to love our neighbours as we love him as well. He loves us just the way we are. Salvation comes to us by nothing that we can bring. We can't bring anything to God. He loves us unconditionally. But he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. There's another theological term, sanctification. We're made holy as soon as we accept Jesus in our life by the fact he lives within us. We're set apart and holy. But we are sanctified and increasingly made holy as the Holy Spirit who lives in us makes us more and more and more like Jesus each day. Salvation comes before sanctification before eventually we go to be with the Lord, unless he comes back first. So he wants us to love that way, but the love of Jesus is a love that is passionate and robust. When you clothe and cover yourself in his love, the love of Jesus, it's a robust and a passionate love. So I'm going to refer to two stories, one out of John chapter 8 and one out of Mark chapter 10. The verses will appear behind me. If you just put your thumb in your Bible, there's a pew Bible there. I'm just going to read from John 8, 10 to 11, and Mark 10, 21 to 22. And we'll see that if we're going to love like Jesus, it's a robust, passionate love. Tim, if you could just put that next point up, that'd be great. Thanks. Okay? So let's go to John chapter 8, verses 10 to 11 first. Now, while you're turning there and putting your thumb there and another uh, thumb in Mark 10, this is a story of a woman caught in adultery. So she's clearly looking for love, but tragically, for the wife or the husband, she's just been having sex with, she's looking in the wrong place. And tragically, for all concerned, the husband, if he's looking for love, but he might be looking for something completely different, he's looking in the wrong place. So Jewish people 
who are set apart to trap and test Jesus, who see him loving everyone. They see him loving unconditionally people, tax collectors, prostitutes, all kinds of sinners according to these religious right-wing people who think that they're perfect and are self-righteous and judgmental. They drag this woman before Jesus with stones because they know that she's broken a commandment. Interestingly, they don't have the man there. We won't diverge and reflect on that. But they know that the, the law of the old covenant is that she be stoned to death. That moral sin is taken very seriously there. And they want to test Jesus, and you will know if you know this story at all, he's already said to them, if any one of you is without sin, sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And the older guys first go away, drop their stones, and then the younger guys go last, but they don't stone her to death. And then when we read in these verses, verses 10 and 11, we see what Jesus is saying to her. He straightens up when they've gone. He asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And with incredible relief, because she thought she was going to die, she must say, no one, sir. No one's condemned her. And then Jesus says these beautiful words, then neither do I condemn you. That must have been like water to her soul. But he follows it up with this. He loves her just the way she is, but he loves her too much to leave her the way she is. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, just in case you think that that's one example of a a moral issue, and it is, let's look at another example of an issue of materialism. Go with me to Mark chapter 10. And the stories of a rich young man or a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he wants to inherit eternal life. And he says, what do I have to do? Now that's interesting. What do I have to do? That's what religious people think. It's about what you do that earns the love of God. It's about what you do that gets you to heaven. It's about what you do that gives you a relationship with God. And this rich young ruler who's got everything in the material realm but longs to have the security of knowing eternal life, comes to Jesus and asks him, and Jesus, giving you the background, he says some of the commandments, but not all of them, because he knows, he knows this young man's heart, he knows that he's lacking in some of those. So then he challenges him, and listen to this challenge from verses 21 to 22. First of all, it says in verse 21 of Mark 10, Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. So let's be absolutely certain. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. His disciples, maybe this is Mark taking this from Peter's account, sees love in Jesus' eyes to this young man. And the disciples who were close to Jesus knew when Jesus is looking at people with that kind of love. Okay? So he looks at him and he loves him. But he says, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And it says, and it's really sad, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, Jesus loved him enough to put his finger on the hard part of that man's heart. Jesus loved him enough to challenge him with something that was holding himself back from God's love. Jesus' love is rich, whether it's the moral issue or the materialism that entrapped this rich young ruler, this rich young man. There's no condemnation for these people. There's love for both of them. He saves the life of one, but he longs that they be saved for eternity by them responding to his love. Well, the big question for us today, and this is where I get into the core of the text that Ross read for us from 
Colossians 3 verse 18 to the end of the chapter, is how do you and I, how do we love like Jesus? How do we love like Jesus? That's the question. So as the question appears, let's ask ourselves, in the light of these scriptures being read publicly to people, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, singles and marrieds, extended families and smaller families are all there as this scripture is being read and they're getting a lesson on how do we love like Jesus. Messages for a Christian household. They're getting a message as wives and husbands, verses 18 to 19. They're getting a message as children and parents, verses 20 to 21. They're getting a message as leaders and workers, verses 22 to 24. And they're getting a message as disciples who follow Christ, verses 24 to 25. If you could put those up, Tim, that would be really helpful. Thank you. So this is about loving like Jesus. It's about loving God and loving people. That's the greatest commandment that Beth taught us about earlier. Okay, It's about loving sacrificially. It's about loving sacrificially. So as we come to the first one, as wives and husbands, how are we called to love sacrificially? Well, let's read what it says, but we need to look even more deeply into it. It says in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. We need to pause there. Does that mean wives be suppressed? Wives be subjugated? Wives be dominated? Wives be bullied and manipulated? Absolutely not. The very next verse, verse 19, says, Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Now, this isn't very PC. I've been speaking from the scripture we're going to look at now, Ephesians 5. So turn there with me. Just go back past Philippians and go to Ephesians. I've been speaking at a wedding from the, uh, the scriptures I'm about to read from Ephesians 5. 5 and I've seen wives um, looking at their husband askance when the husband has d- dug the wife in the ribs when it says, wives, be obedient to your husbands. And then I've seen the husbands um, stared at by the wives when the husbands are told in no uncertain terms, as I will this morning, they're to lay down their life for their wives and cherish them in such a way that they know that they're loved and honoured and respected and valued. I've seen the wives looking right back. So let's read the Ephesians verses and get a little bit more insight into it. From verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is a saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Then listen to this. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. This is absolutely relevant for our society. But in order to fully understand the thrust of it, we need to read the verse above the first verse in Ephesians 5 that I read. We need to read verse 21. Because in your pew Bibles and in my version here, it's separated from verse 22 by a heading, wives and husbands. And verse 21 says this, 
submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's like a mutual submission. Okay? So, Steve and Joe, be a visual aid for me. I know that you love each other and your family deeply. But if I can put it this way, when, Joe, it says that you're supposed to respect him and obey him, Steve, it's a bigger challenge for you because you've got to sacrificially lay your life down and love your wife. Now, I know you two love each other, but picture Joe and Steve in a triangle and picture Jesus at the apex, the pinnacle of the triangle, like the triangle that Beth used. See how God weaves all things together? We didn't even speak about it. And imagine that Steve is at the bottom, the base of one triangle, and Joe is at the other part of the triangle, and Jesus is in the center of their relationship. As Joe moves closer to Jesus, and as Steve moves closer to Jesus, what happens to them both? They both get closer to each other. As they learn to love like Jesus more and more, they both get closer to each other. This is incredibly precious. Love is sacrificial. It's not about a wife being subjugated and suppressed. It's about a wife being so cherished. It's not about a a husband ruling the roost. It's about a husband so loving his wife that together they work these things through. But if there's a tough decision, with the greatest of gentleness, I want to say, the book stops with Jesus, but as both of them submit to Jesus, he'll lead them, but there might just be an occasion where the husband has to say, will you trust me with this? And if he's proved trustworthy and loving and cherishing, that's more likely to happen and then he'll feel more respected. And instead of the downward spiral that you tragically see, the upward spiral starts to run. Are you with me? Now there are Christian husbands who've abused that that scripture and taken it to to just walk all over women. Uh, There's a link elsewhere in terms of leadership and I don't want to go off on that tangent where similar theologies come together and it's, it's used to to rob the church of the giftedness of some women in certain areas. But for now, let's move on. Because the next thing that people hear are children and parents. And this is challenging too. If we go back to Colossians, and we will look at the parallel in Ephesians, but if we go back to Colossians, because Colossians and Ephesians are prison letters. They're written by Paul on open arrest. Ephesians was also written by Paul. And he's mirroring some of the things he's saying. But as we look at verses 20 to 21 here, we read this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter at your children, or they'll become discouraged. And back in Ephesians, what it says, very, very clearly, at the beginning of chapter 6, is, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Then it says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Here's a different word. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now let's bring that stuff together. But first of all, just to lighten the use of the brain, a story. Apocryphal story, not sure if it actually happened. But in this case, the father has gone out to work. Sometimes the father stays at home and the mother goes out to work. Society we're in, both those things are possible. But father's been out of work on a long day and mother has been tearing her hair out with little Billy. Because little Billy, the last thing little Billy has been is obedient. Now I know those of you parents, all your children are perfect and never give you a problem. Right? Well I've discovered that children can sometimes, out of nowhere, do and say things that are really difficult. I particularly enjoyed the terrible twos. 
and the even more terrible threes, you know, toddler tantrums and all that, okay? It needs a lot of wisdom and a lot of love and a lot of compassion if you're not to crush their spirits. But Billy was beyond the pale this day, and in the end, Mum had chased him round the kitchen table, chased him out of the, into the hall, chased him up the stairs, chased him, and he went into his bedroom, and he threw himself under the bed, which was quite narrow, and Billy could get right to the back wall, which up against the wall, and Mum couldn't get anywhere near him, and he just stayed there, and he stayed there, and he wouldn't come out. So eventually, when Dad got home, Mum said, please go and have a word with Billy. He's been beyond the pearl, he's broken stuff, he's shouted at me, he's been completely disobedient. I'm at my wit's end. I know we love him and I don't want to break his spirit, but he's just gone too far. I chased him all the way around the house, chased him upstairs, and he's hidden under, hidden under the bed and I can't get him out. And he won't speak to me. So he says, I'm, I'm sorry you've had such a difficult day, darling. I, I'm really sorry. I, I'll go and see what I can do. And he, and he knows he's got a absolutely support her and back her, but he knows he's got to be there. So he goes upstairs and he, he, he edges under the bed and he, he makes himself as flat as he can and, and he can just about do it. And then he's getting face to face with Billy and he looks into Billy's eyes with absolute fatherly love. And Billy looks back at him and, she's, and he says, Daddy, has mummy's chased you up the stairs as well? <laughs> whatever we do, whatever we do, we need to find a way to love like Jesus as parents. And as leaders and workers, now I need to give a little bit more time to this, but it actually, of course, you're aware, talks about slaves and masters here. And I need to read the first verse of chapter 4, because you need to remember that in this public reading of the Scriptures, the slaves and masters will be sitting maybe in family groups, in extended household groups, as this Scripture is, re- is read. And in verse 25, the masters as well as the slaves have heard Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favoritism. But in verse 1 of chapter 4, they hear this. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Slaves and masters are hearing that they've got the same master. If we go to Ephesians, Paul makes it really, really clear. Just go back to Ephesians chapter 6. And from verse 5 we read, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And listen to verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Now hold on to that and listen to what the same apostle said to the church in Corinth, chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, verses 22 to 23. 1 Corinthians 7, 22 to 23. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was free, a free man when he was called, is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Wow. And when you add to that a whole letter, a whole epistle that Paul wrote to Philemon, it's in the New Testament, the letter to Philemon, 
Paul writes about a runaway slave called Onesimus as he tries to get Philemon to welcome him back and not be harsh with him. And it's the same thing. And throughout the whole of Scripture, we've got what's called a trajectory of understanding where you end up with a great abolitionist like William Wilberforce almost risking his life to stand up against the slave trade. The tragedy is that Ross and some of you, many people, walked to say the slave trading now, today, must stop. There's more slaves in the UK now than perhaps there's ever been. There's certainly more slaves in the world than there's ever been. And slavery is an evil that the Bible does not approve. It deconstructs with verses like that. Don't misunderstand that scripture. Understand how radical it is to to have masters and slaves hearing the kind of challenges that Paul's bringing through the public reading of scripture. He's telling them to love like Jesus because you both have the same master. Wow. But what's the relevance for you and I? Well, the word fair in the Colossians text can, can speak about equality. And in the workplace, and I don't know what your workplace is, but you might be a boss or a manager or a leader in the workplace. You might be self-employed. You might have people working for you. Or you might be in a big company. But you might actually be in the workplace where you don't have that position of, of responsibility. You are a worker and you have to do what the boss or the manager or the leader tells you. And there are principles that we bring to bear here. And the principle is don't work for your boss in a sense. Impress your boss by how well you work because you're working for Christ. Don't ever be unfair to those who are under your supervision and responsibility. Lead them in such a helpful, positive way that you lead them, in a sense, to understand what it is about you that makes you different as a boss or a, or a leader or a manager. And if they know that that's because of Jesus, they might catch a glimpse of the fact that you love Jesus too. So there's some really important principles here. This great commandment, loving God and loving people, is about just that. Just before I move on, there's, there's one other verse I want to refer to in, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. If you could go there with me, that would be really helpful. So go back beyond Ephesians to Galatians. And in chapter 3, verse 28, there's a real justice verse here. Because Paul, again, running to Christians in Galatea, says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. You know, whatever your role in society, whatever my role, whatever our role, however old or young we are, whatever ethnicity, we're all one in Christ Jesus, according to the teaching of the New Testament. And that includes slaves and masters, bosses and workers. And this is important. But just in case you're feeling a little bit left out this morning, you're thinking, well, actually, I'm not married. So the wives and husbands stuff, it's not relevant for me. Well, it may be one day, okay? And maybe you were married, but you've known the pain and the agony of divorce, and God loves you in that. The Bible says God hates divorce. It doesn't say God hates divorced people. We need to understand what the Bible says deeply about those who know the pain of divorce. Maybe you're a single parent, maybe you were never married, and God loves you in that and wants to champion you as you seek to be a parent, both parents in a sense, in the role that you have with your children. Everyone here is not definitely a parent. We're not all parents, but everyone here was a child. And I hope that you were loved as a child in the way that God clearly wants children to be loved. 
not discouraged, not frustrated, not exasperated. Maybe you are a worker, maybe you're a boss, a leader, or a manager. But what I can say is we're all, if you are a follower of Jesus today, and if you're not, I would love to introduce you to him. But if you're here as a Christian today, we are all disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Ross, for the way you led us in prayers today. Using our church vision statement, following Jesus in all of life, growing in love for God and others. As disciples who follow Christ, whether we're single or whether we're married, we're called to love like Jesus. And the call to love like Christ is about loving, remember, in Christ and empowered by Christ, relying on the love that God has for us, the God who is love. Not just acknowledging in our head, but in our head and our heart and our life, trying to love like him. And how does Jesus love? Well, John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. So I'm actually going to ask Andy and the band worship team to come back now. And I'm going to finish with a little bit of psychology. And I know that psychology is not a precise science, I have a background in teaching psychology to A-level and examining it to A-level, but I only studied it as a subsidiary at university. Psychology is not all common sense. Psychologists have discovered some staggering things, and it's not always consistent with the teaching of Scripture. But psychology, like all disciplines, has its uses and its value. And I want to mention an article written in Psychology Today called The Need to Love. The Need to Love. It was written in January 2014, at least that's when the article appeared in Psychology Today, by a professor, Professor Raj Raghunathan, PhD. And he said this, All of us have an intense desire to be loved and nurtured. The need to be loved could be considered one of our most basic and fundamental needs. One of the forms that the need to be loved takes is contact comfort. The desire to be held and touched finding sure that babies who are deprived contact comfort, particularly during the first six months after they're born, grow up to be less secure and are affected in various other ways. Maybe some of you know the pain of that, from personal experience or the children that you now care for. And given the importance of the need to be loved, isn't it surprising, writes this professor, that most of us believe that a significant detriment of our happiness is whether we feel loved and cared for. People rate healthy relationships as one of their top goals on a par with the goal of leading a happy and fulfilling life. And as I read what this professor has has written, I kind of get it. We all need to receive love and be loved. But maybe part of it is we all need to give love as well. We need to love like Jesus. Do you remember that painting that sold for $450 million that had gone in 1958? It sold this week for that. In 1958, it went for £45. That's because when it was discovered that it was authentic, it was discovered to be incredibly precious. And when you've discovered the love of Jesus Christ, it's incredibly precious. And as we said last week, it transforms us. So we need to be able to receive his love, 
But we need to be able to give his love authentically. And we can only do that in the power that he gives. And I think he wants to touch some hearts and some lives now because I think I've hit some hot buttons in some of your lives today. And as I was praying for us this week, this is literally what I wrote down as as God gave me what I thought was some pretty direct revelation about some of you here today, some of us here today. I preface it by saying this, Jesus is the lover of our souls. Jesus is the lover of our souls and he calls us to be wounded lovers. He calls us to be wounded lovers because the truth is I doubt there's a single human being here that hasn't been hurt in this area in some way. But the wounded lover of our soul who had nails driven through his hands and feet and a spear thrust in his side. He calls you and I to be wounded lovers. So a word for parents, first of all. If you're broken by your child's brokenness, God wants to touch you now. If you're broken by your own child's brokenness, God wants to touch you and love you now. And children who are now adults, that's all of us. If you were embittered by your father or your mother, if you were not loved as your heavenly father wanted you to be loved, if you missed that contact comfort or you were just made to feel worthless by people who should have cherished you, your heavenly father wants you to have some contact comfort with him right now. Wives that have felt not cherished, maybe even betrayed, wounded, maybe suppressed or subjugated. And husbands that have not felt respected and loved and valued. If you're in pain, God wants, as the wounded lover of your soul in Jesus Christ, to come and touch you. Those of you who are single, whether through being widowed or divorced, or you're happy and contented, because that's a, an absolute possibility that Paul himself holds up as a value. But maybe you're not. Maybe you're longing and lonely. Maybe you're sad and you're in pain. God wants to touch you. Workers who are frustrated and undervalued, stressed and stretched, and bosses, leaders, managers, who are overwhelmed and feel let down and are confused and fearful of the future. God wants to touch you now. So would you stand with me, please? Already the Holy Spirit is touching people. Already hearts are being ministered to. If you're able to stand, stand with me. I know that there are people here that have been deeply wounded. And I want to ask that if it's appropriate for you to come to the side here on my right or to the side on my left or even to sit on the benches at the front as we're led in some worship and before Ross comes back to us. I'm going to pray now, but I'm just going to ask that you'd allow somebody to come and maybe give you some appropriate contact comfort. What do I mean? A hand on the shoulder. A hand on the shoulder to pray for you. Allow the love of God to touch you. So if you're comfortable, let's turn our hands to heaven as I pray for us now. The Lord has just stopped me in my tracks. Friend, tell me your name. Mama. You have no idea yet, but you will, how much God loves you. He loves you in a way that is going to transform you. He loves you in a way that will take all fear away from you. He loves you in a way that will give you new hope. He loves you and cherishes you in a way that you've not yet experienced. 
and he smiles upon you this day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Father God, for those who are moved deeply within their souls right now. Lord, they don't have to come to the front or to the sides to be prayed for. You can touch them by your Holy Spirit right now, wherever they are. But Lord, some are carrying scars of the past deeply, healed on the outside but still bleeding on the inside. Some, Father, are carrying scars from the present because they are overstretched and overstressed, discouraged and discounted. Some are longing to love, Lord, and they feel that even your church is barring that love from them. Lord, you know every man, you know every woman, and every young person here. And we pray now, Heavenly Father God, in the name of the wounded healer, Jesus, that you will reach out and touch lives and hearts and minds. For Lord, we're going to find it very difficult to love like Jesus unless, Heavenly Father, you pour that healing love of Jesus into us so that it overflows from us. We don't have to be perfect because you're calling us wounded healers. But we do have to be prepared to receive and to give love. So, Lord, pour your love into us and upon us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.